0: Give me from our demands must moderate are we only want the earth
1: that was Monaghan woman Grania Campbell launching Radio Reason's tribute programme We Only Want the Earth the programme is designed to mark the 104th anniversary of the execution of with the life of James Connolly the first of which will be from Edinburgh native Jim Slavin but first let's hear more of that wonderful song Where Oh Where Is Our James Connolly by that fabulous singer Liam Weldon delighted to have Jim Slavin from Edinburgh on the line. Jim is the chairperson of the James Connolly Society in Edinburgh and it's particularly appropriate to have such a person today, the 104th anniversary of the execution of the great patriot and socialist James Connolly. Welcome Jim and thanks for taking our call.
2: No problem Tommy, good to speak to you again.
1: Good, good. Jim, since you're from Edinburgh and I know very well that you have a an extensive knowledge of the history of Edinburgh and its working class. Maybe you'd like to tell our listeners about about the uh, life and conditions of the migrant Irish in that part of the 19th century in Edinburgh and Cowgate. What life would have been like for the Connolly family and other migrants from Ireland and elsewhere if they were there in Edinburgh?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that... The first thing would be the sort of economic situation in terms of Connolly being born on the Cowgate, which as people might know was then part of what was known as Little Island, which is a cowgate, and surrounding areas, the sort of slum housing and the tenements, the pretty poor conditions, even by the standards of the time. But that would be quite a familiar story for people who are aware of Connolly's history, but also just the Dublin history of other major cities. So the conditions there were really quite horrendous, even by Edinburgh slum standards. And we know that because, fortunately, Edinburgh Corporation at the time, they had done a survey of the the. the Situation in terms of the Cowgate area because they were trying to get a handle on it themselves and try to do exactly what the conditions were families were living in. So they done a report in 1868, the, the year Connolly was born, and that gives us a really in-depth insight, not just into the poor conditions, but also the attitude of the council in terms of the language of the report. So there's that aspect of his upbringing, the conditions of the community he was born into, but also we have to understand that it was also an immigrant community largely, the Irish community in Edinburgh was treated very badly and so there was that racialised sectarian element to the conditions they were living in. Connolly was very aware of that not just in Edinburgh but throughout his life.
1: Sure. So obviously I would say that it's a case that Connolly's experience in later life as a socialist and a very erudite socialist. He was based on very firm experiences as a young person growing up in the slum conditions of Kogiet
2: I think that's true and I think it's significant in a, in a way that we've probably none of us really explored properly yet I've often said that Conley's life has been lived backwards in many ways in terms of his uh, his afterlife, that strange afterlife that some of these historical figures have and uh, everybody, the posthumous Connolly. everybody wants a piece of him, every political party, every trade union, certainly in Ireland would uh, like a petty Connolly. They project onto Conley uh, their politics but Connolly's whole life is seen through the prism his death, through his involvement in the Easter Rising for obvious reasons, he's right up there with uh, Patrick Pierce and Zeus in the pantheon, the Irish National Martyrs but I think we need to be looking at Connolly's life, putting him back on his feet, as it were, and looking at his whole life from his birth right through his death that way. Because I think that would maybe give us a better sense of his politics and his ideas that are there, just sometimes just under the surface of his writings as well.
1: Sure. And it, I don't know if there is a reason or a difference, but the two great figures of Irish Labour history of the time of that first decades of the 20th century in Ireland and Dublin in particular. One was a Liverpool Irish and the other Edinburgh Irish. I don't suppose that there may be a a distinction in their their outlooks but personality wise maybe Connolly had a different more intellectual approach to things. But tell us then Jim uh, Scotland today is Connolly remembered? Is he remembered with affection or distaste or is it breaking down into the old sectarian lines and what's his What's his role in Scottish politics?
2: The first thing I should say is that on June the 5th, the James Connolly Society will be having our 34th annual James Connolly Commemoration. It'll be a virtual event this year, of course, given the the pandemic. But um, so I would hope after 34 years, people in Edinburgh are at least aware of him, more than they certainly were in the 1980s when we grew up. And in terms of how he's remembered, I mean, Scotland... I often joke to people back during the sort of peace process, early days of negotiations, that there would be no peace dividend in Scotland. We would always remain fenians. And sadly, that's been very true. So there has not been any sort of sense in which Connolly has been embraced since the peace process for example so we were always told in the 80s and early 90s when the James Connolly commemoration was getting started that the problem was the war in Ireland and if only there was no war in Ireland if only there was no IRA then everybody could celebrate Connolly's uh, socialist politics his trade unionism and all these people who told us that on the left they're, they're no keen to celebrate James Connolly in Scotland now they were in the 80s or 90s I can tell you so the problems that exist in Scottish society are still there in terms of anti-Irish racism and sectarianism and very sadly uh, Connolly's memory is, is very much caught up in that and that is our constant battle that we have in terms of making sure that anti-sectarianism is at the very fore of everything that we do as the as James Connolly society.
1: Good. Well, at least uh, you have to be commended for the 34th year yes. of celebrating the life and times of James Connolly. It just seems strange because Scotland has a socialist tradition. And I remember one time visiting the STUC offices in Glasgow and seeing a large uh, memorial to the men who fought with the International Brigade. So I suppose it's a wee bit strange that they would overlook somebody as heroic and as large as James Connolly but I mean these are the I suppose the politics of today uh, overcome the historical record Jim but tell us then if that's the case uh, just when we're talking here about Scotland and its politics uh, independence is it on the cards?
2: Well uh, it's certainly on the agenda it's not going anywhere it's going to remain on the agenda I mean I think the the, the reason, if you look at the independence referendum in 2014, James Connolly played a very, very, very slight role in that, in the sense of people like ourselves trying to put it on the agenda, but Connolly and John McLean, who we should mention, of course, um, they were very, very marginal figures in that debate, despite it being about independence and ostensibly about the breakup of the UK state. Their arguments for workers' republics didn't figure much at all, and... Sadly, that has been played out since then in terms of the way that the, the Scottish nationalist movement, if we can think of it that way, uh, the way they are pursuing the national question is very much about trying to make an accommodation with the UK state and state power, as opposed to that type of approach that James Connolly would have took, which was very much revolutionary, but also that sense in which we're out for a republic to make a clean break. Scottish, a hundred odd years later, Scottish nationalism isn't quite there yet, so it's, a, it's an ongoing battle, but certainly the question, the national question, is very much on the agenda, whether it's on the cards or not, I'm not too sure.
1: It sounds like that you have imported Redmondism to Scotland rather than Connollyism, but Absolutely. Uh, tell me then, just uh, Jim and um, delighted to be able to talk to someone on this particularly auspicious day from from Edinburgh, from Connolly's hometown. Uh, But also hometown, but also uh, he once gave his birth as being in County Monaghan, which we now know isn't strictly the case, possibly to avoid the uh, British army from which he had left without his Departure papers, Monaghan. Is it really is it really a case that we have a connection with Monaghan and County uh, the County Monaghan in Ireland with Connolly? Oh,
2: well, absolutely. I mean, both his parents were from Monaghan, there isn't no, any question. There's a very strong connection with Monaghan and Connolly. Was very proud of it, but of course he did allow people to think he'd been born there. I think it's partly to do with that history, the British military, that was certainly a factor for him, but also he was at that period, mixing in the Malawi-Irish nationalism, where the idea of being born in Scotland and, having been an ex-soldier, wouldn't have been particularly popular with places. So he was quite happy that people did consider him to be Faye Monaghan. And he famously wrote to one of his friends when that appeared, saying about that, that preposterous biography. But then he went on to say that he wasn't going to correct it. He was quite happy with it. So uh, there is a Monaghan connection there with a the family that he was proud of. And I think that little, that that gives us an insight into Connolly, into the character of him, but also into the way that perhaps... We have to read beyond his writings and look just what's under the surface. As I mentioned earlier, that's sort of um, the hidden messages and nods that are in Connolly's writings because he didn't want to talk about the fact he was born in Edinburgh. He didn't want to talk about the fact he lived in Edinburgh longer than he lived anywhere else, despite the fact it was a place that he corresponded with friends and family here throughout his life. He visited here just before the the rising. Edinburgh was very much part of Connolly, but he never wrote about that, so it's, it's very interesting.
1: And I believe that uh, his brother is buried in Edinburgh, and many of the his fa- his family, obviously, was t- the parents are buried in Edinburgh.
2: Yeah, his, his brother was buried just a, a few weeks after a few weeks after Connolly was executed. His brother died, and he is um, buried in Edinburgh. and he's named on a military memorial, he was given a full British Army uh, funeral. His brother, and he's both his parents are buried in the same graveyard, uh, in unmarked graves, incidentally.
1: That's, so unfortunate but before we uh, let you go jim maybe something a little bit less serious or heavy tell us this there's a rumor going around that he was a hibernian supporter of the football club that is not the ancient order uh hibernian football club in edinburgh is that true at all
2: Firstly, Tommy, that's no less serious than anything else in the state <laughs> of Hibernian football club, let me tell you. Uh, it is true. But again, I think that's one of these things that's like, on one level, it's a sort of trivial thing about uh, did he support Hibernian, which he did. And he, again, when he was based in the United States, he writes back about being depressed when he found out that Hibbs had been knocked out the cup of the hearts, which we've all, we've all been there, Wormley. <laughs> but it's also, I think, a serious point as well that Hibernian were formed in the streets of Little Island during Connolly's early years. Connolly attended some of the meetings with his family. And Hibernian were formed with a very specific ethos, which was about working class self-organisation. So it wasn't about trying to create one big football team that all the Irish Catholics at the time could support. Hibbs instead they exported that idea throughout Scotland so there was dozens and dozens of Hibernian teams based throughout Scotland so they were saying to people didn't you come and support our team we'll help you start your own team but the message was firstly about working class self organisation which Conley took well throughout his life but it was also about saying that was the Irish saying we're settled here we're not gone anywhere, anywhere and we want to play the same games as user play they could have just as easily said, if you'll not let us play for your teams, which was the case. The Irish Catholics were excluded the Scottish teams. They wouldn't have a team into the leagues. So they could have just said, oh, well, we're we'll going and do something else, but they never. They said, no, no, we're here. We're not going anywhere. We want to play the same games you're playing, and we're going to organise ourselves in our own community to build our own teams if yous won't help us. And I think that's a very powerful message and something that Conley, that, that Conley was very supportive of that idea throughout his life.
3: That
1: is a very interesting insight, Jim, into uh, the relationship between the Irish and Scotland of the time, football, and uh, how they sent out a message, but down a signal that they were there to stay and they were going to participate completely in the life of Scotland. Very interesting. Jim Slavin, we're delighted and honoured to have had you speaking with us today on this 104th anniversary of the execution of the great James Connolly. Jim, we'll speak again and thanks once more for having taken the time to speak with us.
2: Thank you, Tommy. Good speaking to you. Cheers.
1: Cheers, Jim.
4: Great Rebellion
1: now to have Brian Hanley on the line. Brian is an academic historian of some repute and an author of several very interesting and powerful and valuable books. Thank you, Brian, for taking this call. Thanks, Tommy. We're sitting here uh, on the 12th of May 2020, the anniversary, 104th anniversary of the execution of James Connolly, and I'm um, privileged to have a Historian of your stature, Brian, to discuss some aspects of Connolly's life. One of the things that strikes me is that, in a relatively short period of time in Ireland between his return from the United States in 1910 and his death in 1916, he has made a huge impact. Uh, at the same time, it might be argued by some that at that period he was overshadowed by Jim Larkin of the Labour movement and otherwise obviously redmond mandate politics. But why do you think that Connolly has achieved such stature and status and importance in the years since?
5: Well, one, I think because Connolly was by far, I mean, the, the most outstanding thinker produced by... The, the labour movement in Britain or Ireland at that time. And again, we, we naturally enough separate them now, but of course people still thought in terms of the United Kingdom and, and, um, in his day, uh, Connolly was an outstanding, um, writer and theoretician, more remarkable for the fact that he was largely self-educated and had begun his work in life at the age of, of about 11 or 12. And I think, Whereas Connolly wasn't regarded as a great public speaker, um, he and was therefore always going to be overshadowed by Larkin in that sense, in terms of agitation. Connolly wrote far more and had been writing for some time about the history of the working class in Ireland, about imperialism and its impact upon ireland and about socialist politics more generally and again there's there's lots that can be said about the variety of his work but certainly i think one of the reasons why he's remembered quite apart from obviously his his death is that he had written labor in irish history he had written labor nationality and religion he'd written about trade unionism he'd written about irish society and culture so he left a great breadth of, of, of work to ponder on really
1: of course Thanks, Brian. And, of course, in terms of his actual achievements, there was, between 1913 and 1916, first the formation of the Irish Citizen Army, which contributed enormously to 1916. But I'd like to ask you, Brian, in light of the divisions there were within the Fenians, within the Irish Republican Brotherhood, there was at least three schools of thought on whether there should be an insurrection or not. Is it fair to say that Connolly's contribution was decisive?
5: Um, I think it is, in, in some ways, fair to say that. But I, I feel, I suppose, that the Tom Clark, Sean McDermott, section of, of the IRB um, were quite de- determined that there would be some form of, of uprising um, during the war, and that they weren't going to miss this opportunity. Clark, in particular, seems to have been haunted by the 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 failure during the Boer War to carry out some kind of rising within Ireland. So I think that there were forces within Fenianism who were determined to strike a blow. But again, certainly Connolly has a galvanizing effect uh, on them as well, because the Citizens' Army, it seems at least, uh, are talking about going it alone in 1915 in terms of some form of uprising and Connolly may have wanted, there were a couple of dock strikes in Dublin that the citizens army were mobilised during and Connolly may have thought that had there been a clampdown at that stage that this would have been the signal to begin some kind of uprising in in Dublin but um, he certainly is one of those who is pushing from the beginning of the Great War for some form of of protest in arms. Now it's another day's discussion, but certainly I think the war is very crucial here to, to the reasons why there is a rising.
1: Yes, of course, and Connolly in that sense took the Leninist position of civil war rather than imperial war, and uh, I suppose we could see it as the, the one of the dividing periods between social democracy and socialism. Is that a fair comment?
5: Yeah, and I mean, I think Connolly was far closer, in fact, to the ideals of the the Second International's previous statements on war than than any almost anybody else in the Second International itself. Once the war began, because he really did take seriously the calls by the International to turn the war into a war against the ruling class in each country, to refuse uh, to allow workers to slaughter uh, each other on behalf of 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 the the ruling class, and he was devastated by the fact that the International seemed to collapse very quickly, in most cases, into support for their respective war efforts. That had a very, very deep impact on him, and he saw himself as being true to the to the genuine tradition of internationalism in moving for um, a, a, a revolt in Ireland, which again, he and he wrote, you know, again in the Workers' Republic and, and so on, about how this might be the spark then that would give light to a wider European uprising. Um, and again, even if the the forces uh, engaged were small. A pin in the hands of a child might pierce the heart of a giant, and so on. So, I mean, I think he's he is very much, you know, on the right side of history in terms of how he sees the Great War. Um, but he is genuinely devastated by the fact that the the big European socialist parties, um, by and large, endorsed the war efforts.
1: Sure. So it certainly gives the light to the accusation or the slander that he was a mere nationalist rather than an internationalist.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't think that really holds any water. And of course, it's a more complicated question um, than that anyway. And, and we could be here all day talking about Connolly's various writings on these subjects. But certainly, I mean... The war has a galvanizing effect, but I think it does demoralize him as well in terms of of what he expects from other uh, socialist parties and and he's seeking allies then among what he sees as the advanced sections of the the, the separatist movement. Sure.
1: And one of his uh, famous phrases was the carnival of reaction in reference to partition, which is something that's still with us, unfortunately. But... Just your own thoughts on the carnival of reaction. He never intended it as something that referred purely to the six counties or northern part of the island, the the unionist and/or Orange tradition. I believe. Would you agree with me there?
5: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's interesting that we we talk about Connolly and partition, but the the entire Labour movement uh, nationally, at least, opposed partition. Uh, once the question of partition. Begun to be raised as a likely compromise in in the context of Home Rule. Jim Larkin, um, the the trade union, the Irish Trade, Trade Union Congress and Labour Party and so on, all opposed partition because they saw it as critically dividing. The Irish working class and, and creating this, this this huge division between between workers north and south, which was seen as as, as unnatur- un- unnatural and also as a way of, of weakening the labour movement nationally. So it wasn't only Conly initially who's very much opposed to partition, but he also saw, of course, that it would strengthen reactionary forces in the south as well. That the if, if home rule had come about, that the Redmondites and that the even the the home rulers who weren't Redmondites like William Martin Murphy and so on would be able to gain a great deal more power in the context of a divided Ireland. Um again whether the the, the, the Labour movement in Belfast itself, of course, was divided, but it still was the most power, potentially most powerful section of the, the Labour movement in Ireland. And that was going to be lost to the unions in the in the South and to the Uh, movement in the South with partition. So Connolly sees it in in an all-Ireland context, certainly. Sure, and uh, it's a
1: difficulty that remains with us to this very day. Finally, Brian, can I put a difficult question to an academic such as yourself? You know, the dreaded hypothetical scenario, which is never welcomed by academics. But there is an element of the left who believe that Connolly would have been better not taking part in the 1916 that he would have been better to have stayed back and taken part in the events that developed thereafter. Would you like to speculate on that?
5: I mean, it is, in some ways, it's an impossible question because had he not taken part in the Rising, uh, there's, you know, what happened afterwards wouldn't necessarily have have worked out in the same way either. And, I mean, I think in many ways the, the Rising... The defeat of the rising and the execution of of Connolly and and the other leaders uh, robbed the separatist movement of many of its most radical and progressive thinkers, not only in socialist terms, but in lots of other ways and they weren't really replaced by anybody um, in the aftermath. A lot of the more successful leaders of republicanism that came afterwards were were very practical and pragmatic but were not as interested in 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 emancipation in many ways as as those who died in the rising I suppose the there is an argument that the rising in its entirety could have occurred at another stage and it would have mobilized probably greater uh, popular support had it done so Um, and this is the argument in theory that people like Bulmer Hobson and so on would have would have claimed. um, But again, difficult to to see if that's um, justification in in retrospect for not doing anything. I mean, I think Connolly felt that once this was going to happen, and I think it would have happened in some way, because right from the beginning of the war, people within the separatist movement, particularly Clarke and McDiarmid and so on, are, are arguing that there has to be um, some form of of uprising uh, casement Plunkett as well by 1915 really putting the practicalities in terms of trying to get German aid and so on, which Connolly hadn't been hadn't been really aware of uh, until a bit later on. So I think something was going to happen, and it's very difficult to see how Connolly could have stood aside from it, given that he again is writing throughout 1915 on the practicalities of insurrections, you know, in the Workers' Republic and and so on, and what would have happened had the Labour not been involved in the, in the Rising, what the proclamation would have looked like without Connolly and so on it's it's difficult to see um, I think it's, it's, it's a worthwhile discussion in terms of, of whether or not an insurrection at another point might have galvanised uh, a different kind of movement, but really I don't think Connolly had much choice when it came to the Easter Rising
1: Of course, and today 104 years after his execution we're still talking about him and the enormous part he has played, and I think that in itself says so much about it. Brian Hanley, you have been incredibly helpful and, and interesting, as always. Our deepest appreciation, and we are looking forward to hearing from you again. Thanks, Brian.
5: Thank you, Tommy. Thank you,
4: Tommy.
1: Section of our schedule is Dublin man Donald Fallon. Donal is a political activist, a historian, and author of Revolutionary Dublin A Walking Guide. Donal is going to give us an insight into how left wing political activists in Dublin of today view the legacy of James Connolly. Thanks, Donal, uh, We're delighted to have you on the line. Donal, what I'd like to ask you is this uh, as a Dublin man. What is the, today's impression in Dublin among you and your contemporaries of James Connolly, his significance? What, what would you say? I mean, has he been forgotten about, or is he just some icon that stands in front of Liberty Hall?
6: I think the significance of, of Connolly today to a younger generation of activists, when, when you get involved in political activism at a young age, and everyone on the left will 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 notice to be true. You know, you, you spend your time pushing kind of leaflets through doors and selling newspapers, and you think that's political activism. And I think when you study Connolly in detail, what becomes apparent is is the, the great emphasis that Connolly placed on on you know, life in the broadest sense, and in particular on culture. And I think we see in, increasingly that you know that is a sphere where where young people recognise the political potential of of the arts, of of theatre, of of song, of music. So Larkin and Larkin and Connolly, who I see that kind of great moment—the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, the birth of Liberty Hall—in a sense, it was of course a political revolutionary movement. It was an economically revolutionary movement, but it was also a culturally revolutionary movement. And I think Connolly, for me, and for a lot of young people, he embodies also that great kind of that great cultural radicalism that is so so important.
1: Of course, and. His significance too in terms of the movements he founded and I I think we'd have to say that uh, he may well be disappointed in the outcome of today's Irish Labour Party but having said that, uh, Connolly was a man of action although uh, maybe in his time overshadowed somewhat in the terms of publicity by Larkin but he was, he, he Demonstrated the idea. He demonstrated in practical terms the need for action as distinct from just mm. worthy resolutions.
6: I think you're right. The, 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 the Larkin Connolly um, divide is is interesting in its own way. I mean, Larkin is a is a is a classic piece of Dublin iconography too. That iconic statue there in the in the in the centre of of O'Connell Street, as he was in life, you know, arms raised to the air and screaming at us to get off our knees. But I think Larkin and Connolly were, were were very different people in the sense that. Larkin, I mean, he was a great newspaper editor, the Irish worker, has stood the test of time. But Connolly, we can really get inside the mind of Connolly. You know, Connolly wrote so much more in terms of song, in terms of plays, in terms of political theory, in terms of history. As a a historian, I'm always amazed by, by Labour and Irish history that someone would undertake something as ambitious, as a kind of broad Marxist survey history of Ireland from, you know, from the time of the Viking and before through to the Industrial Revolution uh, and beyond. So I mean, Connolly has left us such an incredible legacy in terms of just the, the volume of work he managed to produce in what was a, a relatively short life. We forget that Connolly was not yet 50. He was 47 years of age uh, at, the time of his, at the time of his execution. And yet hundreds of thousands, millions of words uh, survived that give us that great insight uh, into his mind. So I like the fact we're always debasing Connolly what the you know Connolly uh, was a political thinker and, and his, his views on, on various subjects really since the 12th of May 1916 have been hotly debated just as he'd probably like it
1: Of course, and so much of it remains relevant I'm just looking at one of his uh, pieces of writings from the Workers' Republic and it was even uh, before the 20th century 1899 and he talks about uh, I, I, I'll read it through to you After Ireland is free says the Patriot Who won't touch socialism? We will protect all classes, and if you won't pay your rent, you'll be evicted, same as now. But the evicting party (laughs) under command of the sheriff will wear green uniforms and the harp without the crown. I mean, uh, with 10,000-plus homeless and evictions possibly around the corner, you would almost think he was writing that for the Workers' Republic a few weeks ago.
6: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think it's remarkable today when you look at um, political demonstrations in in Dublin. And this has been true 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 the last century. It's always the iconography of, of Connolly. It's always the words of Connolly and Larkin. Uh, that resonate and that are that are still there. And you know, other great figures through Irish history, people like James, think Lawler comes to mind, Michael Davitt too. I mean, they also left a rich intellectual legacy. But I think there's something about the way Connolly managed to just make a point, like that, like that quote you had there. I mean, there's humour in that quote. Uh, the politics, they, they hit you over the head, you know. In a sense, the uh, the words of Connolly just just haven't died. They they remain. They sound like propaganda that will be written in the in the contemporary sense.
1: It certainly does. And another of his almost thrighted has become cliched quotations now is the carnival of reaction when he was referring to partition. And uh, with a couple of days ago, just reminded of how reactionary the partitionist element can be here when we hear of the shockley shockingly, over Adker talking about Belfast being overseas, and his uh, minister Regina Doherty speaking of the Irish people as if they only lived in the 26 counties, which would
6: actually disenfranchise myself, who was born in County Tyrone. But uh, yeah, and uh, remarkable even in in the, in the times of a, of a global pandemic, the way they just dis- the partitionist rhetoric. You would you would swear that. Uh, you know, highly infectious diseases stop at Newry you know, the, <laughs> the, the the manner in which the, the southern state um, discusses the north is, is absolutely reactionary and absolutely appalling
1: Sure and just as in the past with the reactionaries we still have the reactionary elements in Dublin today uh, we see a group of them campaigning for to uh, break the social isolation as they call it campaigning in the four courts were for to have the legislation changed to allow them rampage through the city streets, uh, with a very different response from the Gardaí to those who went to pollute the air around the four courts and those uh, working people struggling for their employment outside Debenhams.
6: Absolutely, and to do so under the, the ridiculous veil of uh, proclaiming themselves to be patriots is, is what I find you know, truly laughable about it. I mean, the most patriotic thing one can do at the moment, and on this day, you know, on the 12th of May, there's nothing we'd all like to do more than gather and commemorate Connolly and, and sing songs. But, I mean, the most patriotic thing one can do today is, is not to do that. You know, and to come together at the moment, we kind of have to stay apart. Unfortunately, that's how it is. And um, you know, to see these people wrapping themselves in the green flag and proclaiming themselves to be nationalists is, is deeply ironic to my mind.
1: It is, of course, but then William Martin Murphy would have claimed to be... This. <laughs> <laughs> strong nationalist, indeed, indeed, yeah. indeed. But listen, before we go, Donland, thanks again for your, your contribution. It's been fabulous. Just tell us, we're celebrating the hundred and fourth anniversary of James Connolly's execution. Not celebrating the execution, but celebrating his life and the contribution he made to Ireland and the working class across the world. In a hundred and four years' time, when I assume both of us will be long gone. <laughs> do, you think, do you think there'll be two people or more talking about James Connolly?
6: I think there will be, and I hope there will be, in, in the sense that, I mean, we, we go back and we we talk about, you know, Tiavall's Wolf Tone, we talk about um, Robert Emmett, uh, Edward Fitzgerald. I mean, I think history, and you notice too, is is such a powerful thing that that generation, the 1916 generation, many of them were, were shaped by, Connolly to some degree was shaped by the centenary of, of the United Irishman by the, 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 the message of 1898. And I think we have done a great job at our time of politicising the decade of centenaries that we're living in now, you know, the Limbic Soviet, 2016, the 100th anniversary of the rising. So I think our job, Tommy, both of us as socialists and everyone around us, is to give them something to commemorate in 100 years.
1: That's a fabulous <laughs> sentiment, Donald, <laughs> and thanks. Thank you for that. Look, we'll talk to you again, all being well, and I have no doubt our readers and listeners will enjoy this conversation. Thanks, Donald. Much obliged to you. You're welcome. Before Liam Weldon sings us out of this programme with the final verses of "Where Where is James Connolly? We're going to hear Monaghan Woman, Granny Campbell, recite James Connolly's wonderful poem, We Only Want the Earth.
0: We Only Want the Earth by James Connolly. Some men faint-hearted ever seek A programme to retouch And will insist, whene'er they speak, that we demand too much passing strange, yet I declare Such statements give me mirth. From our demands, most moderate are We only want the earth Be moderate, the trimmers cry Who dread the tyrant's thunder You ask too much and people fly From your ghast in wonder "'Tis passing strange, for I declare, such statements give me mirth. "'From our demands, most moderate are, "'we only want the earth. "'Our master's all a godly crew, "'his hearts sub for the poor. "'Their sympathies assure us too, "'if our demands were fewer. "'Most generous souls, but please observe, "'what they enjoy from birth. "'Is all we ever had the nerve to ask, "'that is, the earth?' The labour faker, full of guile, base doctrine ever preaches, And whilst he bleeds the rank and file, To moderation teaches. Yet, in despite, we'll see the day, When, with sword in its garth, Labour shall march in a war array, To realise its own, the earth. For labour long, with sighs and tears, To its oppressors knelt, But never yet, to aught save fears, the heart of a tyrant melt. We need not kneel, our cause is high. Of true men there's no darth, and our victorious rally cry shall be, we want, the earth.